right, well, I am probably going to smirk all nine weeks that I walk up to that music during this series. Uh, well, good morning. Good morning. All right. Hey, that was good. That was good the second time around. Uh, it's good to see you, and I just want to say, if you're visiting with us today, then we are so grateful to have you uh, with us as our guests. Truly, as a church, we're just so uh, privileged that you would be with us, and we want you to know that we want to know you. We would love to know who you are, uh, and we would love to know if there's any way we can help you, and we'd, of course, love to help you learn how you can get connected into the life of our church. Uh, so you can stop by one of the welcome tables on your way out today, or you can text the word CONNECT. Uh, to the number that you see on the screen, and one of our team members will follow up with you uh, this week. And, you know, I'm just so grateful for our church. God has really been at work in the life of our church, and I'm excited uh, to just celebrate that more in the weeks to come. And I'm uh, particularly excited about what we're calling uh, Vision Day. Uh, it's going to be the first Sunday in February. We're going to take a one-week break from our time uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And that morning, we'll talk about what our vision and mission is as a church and where that comes from in Scripture. And then that night, we're going to celebrate the ways God has been good to us, particularly in the past year and talk about some ways that we believe uh, that God is leading us as we move forward. And one of the reasons that, uh, at least practical reasons, that uh, God has blessed our church in the way he has done over the past uh, several years, and one of the reasons that we can have uh, great confidence in what God is going to do is the people who he's placed in the positions that he's put them in. And if, if you've been around our church for a while, you know that the credit for what God has done through us uh, does not belong to any one person, but it belongs to multiple people who filled multiple roles in multiple seasons. And one of the people who I particularly am most thankful for, who God has brought to serve our church family, is our church administrator, Steve Renna. Uh, Steve, are you out in the foyer or somewhere around fixing a hole or something in the wall? Uh, Steve, come, come here for a second and join me uh, on uh, the stage. Uh, Steve, uh, if you've worked alongside him, served alongside him, uh, is brilliant and hardworking and uh, most importantly, he loves Jesus a lot. Uh, one thing I say is that working for a church is not the best job. It, <laughs> What? You guys didn't laugh. Okay. I, what, what I mean by that, sorry, I'm gl glad that was not online, uh, is um, you got to be, you got to be, oh, it is online? Oh, no. Uh, you got to be, uh, uh, <laughs> you got to be called uh, to the role. It's not just a good job to have. It's, it's, it's a ministry. And Steve truly deserves, desires uh, for this to be a ministry, so much so that we actually couldn't recognize him in last service because he was teaching uh, in his life group, and that was his primary commitment. And um, our, our personnel team and trustees recognized him with a gift. But I just want to say on behalf of myself and our staff and our church that we're incredibly grateful for you and the five years now that God has had you in the role. So we, can we just celebrate? <laughs> Love you, ma'am. All right. And this is online. So if you're joining us online, I didn't greet you, but uh, we're glad to have you with us as well. All right, so, um, you know, when I think about our future as a church, I really do believe there are some great days ahead, and uh, I'm just so thankful for the great people I am surrounded by. And, you know, anytime we encounter greatness, it's really something that stands out to us. I wonder what you think about when you hear that word, greatness. 
Uh, maybe like me, you're into sports, and so uh, immediately uh, certain figures come to mind uh, when you think of the word greatness. Uh, if you think about uh, football, now uh, you have to think about Tom Brady, who is uh, the greatest of all time. I don't particularly care for the Patriots or the Buccaneers or Tom Brady, but he is uh, the greatest of all time. Uh, maybe if you're into hockey, which I'm not because I'm from Florida, um, you think about Wayne Gretzky, who was uh, the greatest. If, if you're thinking about basketball, uh, I'm sorry to younger people, but MJ, Jordan, is the greatest of all time, not LeBron. Uh, or, or maybe it's not sports that you think of when you think of greatness. You think of just uh, success and business and influence in our society. Perhaps you read this week that Apple uh, just reached a $3 trillion valuation. So that means their company is worth $3 trillion. Uh, maybe you think of Walt Disney and his legacy and the empire uh, that has been built uh, that is Disney. Or maybe you think of uh, more uh, significant things like the greatest songwriter ever to ever exist, Taylor Swift, or somebody like that. Maybe you think of truly great things like this nation and, and our founding fathers and, and really, you know, the great uh, nation that uh, was birthed through them. Or, or maybe you think about people like uh, Martin Luther King, who we celebrate uh, this weekend and how their life was about something bigger than themselves and they still have a legacy today. Maybe it's not a person, maybe it's a place. I, I've never been to the Grand Canyon, it's on my bucket list, I hope to go there one day, but uh, if you, even you see pictures of the Grand Canyon, you realize it's really a Grand Canyon, it's really great. Uh, maybe you've had the opportunity to be uh, in front of some of the large mountain ranges in our world and just see the greatness uh, that is before us. We live close to the ocean, and if you stare out over the ocean, you know, or maybe you've had the opportunity to be out on the ocean, and you're just aware of how great and how vast uh, the ocean is. Now, not only are there things we think about when it comes to greatness, but we are often intrigued by greatness. What is it about greatness that attracts you? Greatness is something we are all aware of. It's something we all are attracted to, and it's something that most of us aspire to in some form or fashion. Today, we are looking at Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 37, and we are talking about how to be great. So we're going to walk through these verses here in Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 37, and we're going to talk about three things that Jesus teaches us about being great, and then as we kind of wrap up, I want to talk about the pursuit of greatness and how it gets corrupted. So I'll begin in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. It says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So Jesus is trying to get from Galilee to Capernaum uh, pretty speedily, and he didn't want to draw attention or draw a crowd away uh, from, uh, excuse me, to him to distract uh, from him getting there as soon as he could. The Greek imperfect is used here when it says was teaching and when it says saying, which emphasizes that what Mark is saying is that this is reoccurring teaching that's taking place during this journey. Jesus was teaching the disciples that he was going to be delivered, he's going to be betrayed or handed over, he was going to be killed, 
and he was going to rise again after three days. He's now very directly teaching them about his upcoming death. And verse 32 says, but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. Not understanding here carries with it the idea that they were ignorant. They did not get how it could be possible that Jesus is the Messiah and then he's going to be delivered and killed. And what does he mean raised after three days? Is this some kind of figurative language? Now in fairness, the disciples had not spent a ton of time with Jesus up until this point. And it takes a while to completely change your beliefs and your understanding. You see, they grew up and they had been exposed to the teaching that the Messiah would alleviate them from all suffering and from all oppression. And yet, now the one they believe is the Messiah says that he is going to die. Luke tells us in his gospel that they did not understand this saying and that it was concealed from them that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Now this kind of language, which the Bible actually uses several times, is a little confusing. But here is what is clear. God has not helped them to understand the meaning of Jesus' betrayal, death, and resurrection yet. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Maybe because they should know by now. Maybe they should have paid better attention. Or maybe they were paying attention and they still didn't grasp it. And so they felt uncomfortable asking him because they felt like they probably should have grasped it by now. Or maybe they just didn't want to rebuke him. They couldn't accept what he was saying. And so to speak up about it would be a rebuke because they definitely thought, how is this possible? In fact, we read just a, a few verses before this, a few weeks ago, that Peter does rebuke Jesus for saying that he's going to die. Or maybe they didn't really want to know what the implications were. And Matthew tells us that they were actually greatly distressed. Now, as I mentioned, this is Mark's summary of an ongoing conversation, of ongoing teaching, and an ongoing mentality that existed amongst the disciples. In Matthew's gospel, the temple tax and the fish story are sandwiched in between uh, this account. And so it indicates that there's a decent amount of activity that happens in this quiet period of Jesus' ministry. Our Alan Cole says this is a time of intensive, not extensive teaching by Jesus. And so Jesus isn't saying a bunch of things here, but he's really talking about the same thing over and over again here in this journey from Galilee to Capernaum during this time. Now, I do think it's worth quickly noting that there were months of Jesus' ministry that were rather uneventful in the sense of greatness the way we typically view it. And I think that that is something we should know because our life isn't an every week great story of great things that are happening in our life, but Jesus is still there, Jesus is still working, and God is who we should be looking to. And so they're ministering, and there's you know this ongoing conversation as they quickly get from Galilee to Capernaum about God's plan for Jesus to be betrayed and killed and rise again. And the disciples are trying to figure out what this means and the implications of what Jesus is saying. Verse 33, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, 
what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Disciples did not walk side by side with the rabbi. They did not walk alongside the rabbi. They followed behind him. And there was a saying that you should be following your rabbi so closely that you would be covered in his dust. So because of this, Jesus would not have easily heard the conversation that was taking place behind, between the disciples as they headed to Capernaum. But Luke tells us that Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And Jesus asked them what they were discussing. And they really did not want to say. Matthew tells us that eventually they reveal the answer. And they then ask Jesus, who is the greatest in heaven? Greatest is comparative form in Hellenistic Greek. It's kind of like a superlative. In their day, every member knew where he ranked. Every member knew where he stood in uh, his household. And if you were the firstborn, then that brought you certain rights and second and so on. And you could even lose the rights of the firstborn in some situations. Everyone knew where they ranked if they worked on, you know, a big farm, if they were servants for uh, one master and the different privileges and rights that came along with that. There was a great military presence, and just like our military today, they had ranks and certain uh, duties and responsibilities and rights and privileges that came with that. And so what they are doing here is they're thinking about the world they know, and they're thinking, okay, where do I rank then with Jesus? Where do I rank in the kingdom of God? And Jesus tells them and us this in verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, when a rabbi sat down, he wanted the attention of his disciples to teach them a lesson. And Jesus teaches them, if anyone would be first, he's referring to rank, he's, the rights and privileges that come with ranking first, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. The word last is a word, Greek word eschatos. It's where we get the idea of eschatology or the study of end times from. Jesus is saying if you want to be first, then you must rank yourself last. You must rank everyone before you. And you must be a servant of all. A servant executed the commands of their master. The servant's identity was found in doing what those who they were under, who they were submitted to, told them to do. And Jesus says, if you want to rank first, if you want to be first, if you want the rights and privileges that come with being first in the kingdom of God, then you must say, everyone else ranks before me, and I am here to serve them. The disciples wanted to be great. We want to be great. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, serve others. If you want to be great, serve others. Now often when people say that they want to experience God's greatness for their life, they mean they want to be important. They want to feel important. And Jesus says, if you want to experience God's greatness in your life, Consider everyone else more important than you. 
Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says that in response to who Christ is, we are to consider others more significant than ourselves. When Jesus is asked about what the greatest commandment is, he says that it's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Whenever Jesus teaches, he often teaches about laying down your life for the gospel, laying down your life for others. In fact, he says, there's no greater love than to lay your life down for someone else. I had the privilege of uh, preaching at Miss Betty McNabb's uh, celebration of life uh, just a couple months ago. And as, in preparation for that, I was given her Bible, which she had had for several decades, and written in her Bible was a question, what is love? And then the definition, commitment of your will to give what is best to the other person as long as they live. The definition of love she gave was consistent with the scriptures, that it's a desire to say, my will is to give what is best to every person God puts in my path as long as they are in my path. And Jesus uses his surroundings here to illustrate just how far he intends for this to be true of his disciples. Verse 36 and 37. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, and to understand the fullness of what Jesus is saying. We need to understand his context. Today, in America, 99%, over 99% of children live to the age of 15. So that's still sad to think about. About one out of every 100 children doesn't live to the age of 15. And while that's sad for us to think about, we are living in unprecedented times when we think about that kind of survival rate. In fact, if we were to look at the whole world, the statistics say that about 95% of children live to the age of 15. So that means one out of every 20 children who are born don't make it to the age of 15. But just 30 years ago, 1990, that number was closer to 85%, somewhere between 85 to 90%. And so that means that just 30 years ago, more than one out of every 10 children did not make it to the age of 15. Well, in Jesus' day, only, only three-fourths of birth, those children lived more than a few hours or days. So there was a 25% chance that a child would not make it through childbirth or shortly thereafter. And then another 40% of ch those children that uh, made it through childbirth would not make it to age 15. Because of the lack of health care they had, because of the lack of uh, you know, resources they had, uh, because of the life expectancy of, of parents, so this child that was sitting with Jesus in just this moment had a 50% chance to make it to the age of 15. Children in that day were greatly dependent upon their parents, or if they didn't have parents, other adults for survival. They were weak. One commentator says that they had the inability to advance his or her own cause apart from the help, direction, and resources of a parent. And Jesus here isn't even talking about your children because there's a certain desire you would have to carry on your legacy or to ensure uh, what you had was inherited and then stewarded well. And in fact, there was actually a high chance, given the circumstance, that this child was actually an orphan because he wasn't hiding 
behind his parents here. This child did not have anything to offer anyone. And when Jesus says, receives one, he's using the language of welcoming someone of honor, of status, or position. What Jesus is saying to the disciples and to us is this. If you want to be great, honor those who cannot bring you honor. If you want to be great, honor those who cannot bring you honor. You see, there's no political payback in serving children. They can't vote for you. And children don't give speeches about how great your helpfulness is. In fact, children pretty much take for granted that you take care of them. And so, children prove more than any other, perhaps, whether you are truly great or not. Whether you live to be served or to serve. Whether you live to be praised or for the praise of God. Now, just because the survival rate has changed and children are, our society in many ways uh, takes care of children differently, let's not think we're too far removed from this. In fact, I think we move, are moving increasingly fast towards a society that views children as an inconvenience rather than a blessing. Decades ago, because of advancements in healthcare and technology, our, our families began to make decisions about how many children we would have based on what we felt would not alter our lifestyle. Now, just because I have more children in my home doesn't mean that I am exempt or better than you from being driven and conforming to a pattern of this world that is not informed by the Scripture or by what God would have to say, but how we can maintain a certain lifestyle for us and our family. And so we increasingly move more and more in that direction. Now, I could, st I could spend the rest of our time talking about how the world looks and, and the ways that that's being played out in the world and the problems that is. But the primary goal to gather this morning is not to lecture and preach against the world, but it's to talk to the church. And what I've noticed is that many believers continue to move in that direction as well. I'm studying for school, I'm studying intergenerational discipleship. And in that, I'm doing research on the history of the church and, you know, how the church used to be really integrated when it comes to all the different generations. And over time, the church has moved to where the age groups are pretty segregated on Sunday morning or other activity days. And a large reason for that is that it got to a point where people said they wanted to have their church experience and they didn't want to hear noisy children anymore. They wanted to study the Bible without those distractions. A lot of people reach a certain place in their life where they say, I don't have any need for children anymore. And I just want to say to you that Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me not only receives me, but him who sent me. And Jesus not only the tells, tells the disciples and us that the key to understanding greatness is found in serving children, he says it's found in learning from these children. Matthew records something that Mark does not write down, and that is this. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven of heaven. Now Jesus is not saying that children are sinless and perfect, so we should follow their example if we want to be great. 
Trust me, I have six in my house. They are not sinless and perfect. So what is Jesus saying? Well, notice he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn. That's a Greek word, strepho, which means to turn away or around. It means to change your direction. Jesus says, unless you change your direction from pursuing earthly greatness and become like a child who is dependent, then you will not see the kingdom of God. He's saying, unless you change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Now think about a child and their longing to be loved. They're longing to be accepted. They're longing to be safe and secure and provided for and that they thrive in this and that they need this. If you want to be great, Jesus is saying, love God like a good child loves their father. If you want to be great, love God like a good child loves their father. You want to be loved, you need help, and you want to trust and submit because you know that you need guidance. And Jesus has been teaching the disciples that God is not a distant God, but he is Abba Father. He is their heavenly Father who they can pray and make their request known to. He loves them and they are secure in him. And so it doesn't matter what the world says about them because of who they are in him. And they need help, but they have access to God. Not through a priest or another pastor, but through ultimately the blood of Christ. Direct access to God. Tim Keller says this, only a child of the king would wake him up at 2 a.m. for a glass of water, and that's the kind of access you and I have to God. And then we see he is for us, and he is wise, and we trust, and we submit him, and we live a life in that way. And a good child wants to honor their father's name. A good child wants to bring honor. They want to make their dad proud. And they're driven by this in so many ways. Dads, I'll just say to you quickly, what a humbling responsibility that is. What a privilege that is. Something we're supposed to steward well. You know, as a pastor, I get to meet with people whose lives are not in a good place, who are off in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and just staggered by how much of people's struggles is tied to the fact that they weren't loved and accepted by their father. So young men, I don't know if I'm still young. I'm still in my 30s, so I could, you know, for a few more months, so I can say that. Young men, may we be awake to this short season of life we have with our children. And may the thing they walk away with above all things is that they are loved by us, that we are always here for them. And that if they're trying to follow God, we are proud of them no matter what that looks like. And I'll just say to you, if you're older and you don't have that kind of relationship with your children and they don't feel that from you, I just want to encourage you to do something. Humble yourself and call them and apologize. And you might think, well, my children did this and this is, I'm not, I'm not telling you they haven't done a bunch of stuff wrong. But you're the dad. 
You be the mature one. You lead the way. You never know what kind of healing God might bring if you're willing to do that. So the disciples, and I, I think you, think about greatness. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, serve others. If you want to be great, honor those who cannot bring you honor. And if you want to be great, love God like a good child loves their father. And as we transition here, I want you to realize something. Something that Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying, don't be great. Jesus doesn't discourage the pursuit of greatness. He redeems it. Jesus doesn't discourage the pursuit of greatness. He redeems it. Now, some people reject greatness altogether. They spiritualize their lack of hard work and lack of courage and boldness and risk by saying, I'm just too humble. No, you're just lazy. Or maybe you're insecure. Or some people say, I, I don't want to become like these warped versions I've seen of greatness or warped versions I've seen of power. And so they run from greatness altogether because of that. But nowhere does Jesus criticize a person for pursuing true greatness or true significance. And I think that's because he has caused, created us to be truly great and truly significant. And I also think Jesus inspires us to want to be great as we encounter Christ and we see him and what he did. As the disciples walked alongside Jesus, following in his footsteps, they saw his greatness and they too wanted to be great. We want to come to the end of our lives and feel that they were well spent and well lived and well invested. But what has happened to this God-given longing for greatness is it has been corrupted by sin in two ways. Sin corrupts our longing to be great into a longing to be known as great and to be greater than others. Sin corrupts our God-given longing to be great into a longing to be known as great and to be greater than others. And we can look to the first people who were ever created to see that man has always struggled with trusting God for what it means to be truly great. And the same lie that was told to Adam and Eve that they can achieve a greatness for themselves that is better is the same lie we're being told today with just more complexities. Eat the fruit because it's good for food. It's something that God hasn't given you that you can get for yourself. It's a delight to the eyes and it will make you wise like God. And today we struggle with the greatness of taking things in our own hands, thinking by, by stepping outside of God's will for our life that we can give ourselves something better. We have desires that we want to see met, met, and we think by pursuing them we'll see some kind of fulfillment that God could not give us. And we think that we can become like God apart from God's will for our life. And so we pursue greatness apart from God comparing ourselves with what others have and saying, I have to have that. By winning, by beating others, by being better than others, often putting others down so we feel better about ourselves. And this, this creeps into every area of our life, our career, our, our recreation, everything, our church. A lot of people who have this issue of pride you know, have some problems in their life, so they go to church, never deal with the issue of pride, and then their pride 
is expressed in the fact that they think they can become some level 10 Christian, right? Where they have the greater understanding of, of, of the Bible and theology and life more than other people, constantly putting those other people down, especially the ones who sin differently than we do. And Jesus recognizes in his disciples a quest for greatness that's a good thing and that has become ugly and distorted by sin. And instead of discouraging them altogether, he describes a pathway on which the distorted and ugly pursuit of greatness can be radically transformed into something beautiful that God has created. He says true greatness is not wanting to be first while others are second and third and fourth, but true greatness is the willingness to be last. True greatness is not positioning yourself so that others praise you, but true greatness is putting yourself in a position to serve everyone, to be a blessing to as many people as you possibly can. You see, there's a difference between being someone with drive and ambition and somebody who's competitive. You see, drive and ambition are a good thing. The desire to say, here's who I am and here's what God has given me, maybe instinctively, maybe through uh, my parents and my background, the, the environments I've been in, maybe through the experiences I've had, and I wanna leverage all that. I wanna use that for the good of God's kingdom and the good of others, but there's also competitiveness where we say, I want to be better than others, and that is not from God. Now, I'm not saying that a little friendly competition doesn't grow us and give us opportunities, but what I'm saying is that ultimately, we should be people who are driven by the kingdom of God, not trying to make ourselves look better than others. Think about this in a good father. I, I think about this, yeah, I, I coach my children's sports teams, and, and I, I get to coach you know, other children too because I, I do that, at least as they're younger. And you know, my goal, primary goal, is not to win, even though I really enjoy winning. And if you've ever seen me coaching your children, maybe a little too much, and God's working on me, okay? I mean, we do win most of the time. But anyway, okay, sorry. Ultimately, what I want my children to feel and know and what I want every child I coach to know is this. Do your best. Give it your all so you can hang your head high whether you win or you lose. That's what matters. And so there's this freedom from a child who knows that from their father about their life. How well you do and how you compare with others who are probably fronting on social media and in church anyway is not what God is concerned with for you. He has created you. He has created you uniquely. And he just wants you to take what he's given you and use it to honor him and use it to serve others. You know, Peter in the Bible is this guy who speaks up and sometimes he speaks up and we're like, oh, he shouldn't have said that even though we were all thinking it. But God also uses the personality of Peter to say some things that are still meaningful to us today. In John chapter 6, in that gospel, it records this interaction with the disciples. It's right after Jesus was teaching some of the things we're talking about today. And he then goes on to basically explain what communion will be. And, you know, his body given for you and his blood shed for you. And there's a lot of the 
disciples who say, that's not what we want. We want earthly greatness. And so verse 66 of John chapter 6 says, many of Jesus' disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's saying, yeah, we have a longing for greatness. And some of the things you're saying aren't compatible with what we define as greatness. But you, Jesus, you're what's truly great. And so if we want to be great, where else will we go but you? The Christian life is just living that out. I summarize today by saying this, greatness is found in being secure as a child of God, in helping others, excuse me, committing your days on earth to helping others discover that same security. Greatness is found in being secure as a child of God and committing your days on earth to helping others discover that same security. Who you are in Christ is his son or his daughter if you have trusted in him. And so it doesn't matter how we compare. And even it doesn't matter how successful we are. We're loved and we're accepted by our Heavenly Father. And we know that there are brothers and sisters, potential brothers and sisters, who are running from God. The prodigal son says, the story of the prodigal son says, eating with the pigs. They might not even see it. And we as God's children run to them saying, here is who you are in Christ. That's greatness. May we walk in that. Let's pray together. God, you are who is truly great. Your greatness is on display in Christ, and we haven't even fully seen that until the return of Christ. And I just pray that if there's somebody here who's been pursuing significance and greatness apart from you, and it's empty, whether they've achieved it or not, they know it's empty. But they know you're coming after them, that they would just turn to you admitting they need your greatness they need Christ and the sacrifice that they would just know how loved and accepted they are by you and that they would walk in that Lord I pray for believers in this room if they're if they're being faithful in these areas God I just pray you give them strength serve others God even if they're not being recognized by man for the things that they're doing whether it's in their home or their church or community Lord I just pray your love fuels them Lord if there's somebody in this room or professes to be a believer 
who's gotten to this point in their life that they believe they deserve recognition, they deserve the comforts of this life. God, I pray that they have not received the reward in full. Because we as Christians do not live to receive rewards on this earth, but we as believers realize the reward of the glory of Jesus that is given to us. And we live for that. So may we walk in that today. Jesus.